Hello all, uh, this is Raj Misa. Welcome to the next episode of Direct Shift, uh, Direct Shift Stories. In fact, today we have our CEO, Vamshi, interviewing George. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, I'm, uh, I mean, he's the godfather of uh, angry management, anger management. Uh, I mean, you can see my excitement in the way I'm uh, fumbling. I'm a little tense. I've been waiting for this day for a couple of uh, days now. Uh, in short, I can say that George Anderson is the godfather uh, when it comes to uh, anger management. And I'm also excited to say that um, he worked as a technical consultant on the popular Jack Nicholson, Adam Sandler movie, Anger Management. So you can see it in the way I speak, but uh, I mean, without further ado, I'd like to uh, hand it over to our CEO, Wamshi. Uh, over to you, Wamshi. Thank you, George. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Raj. Uh, thanks for making this happen, Raj. And George, um, uh, during the course of this whole thing, I'll be thanking you multiple times. So first of all, thanks for being here with us. Um, for all of our um, audience out there and you know our network out there, extremely privileged today to present to you George Anderson. Um, he is a coach, he's a teacher, he's a great human being. Um, I'm Harvard Medical School trained, licensed social worker, you name it. He has all the titles against his name. Uh, but the big title is, in, my, in our opinion, he has chosen to help people around him um, through clearly recognizing that mental health is in fact more important uh, in some cases than physical health. Um, and um, George has been in the service of people for, um, you know, I would say more than 50 years. He has seen the radio era, the television era, the internet era, he has seen it all. Um, the only thing that has not changed, everything has changed, the whole world has changed. The only thing that has not changed, I would say is, uh, his ability to help people, his ability to constantly show the world uh, emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, and mental health are two key aspects of human life. So again, I'm hugely privileged today to present George Anderson as a part of our Direct Shift stories, where we are trying to bring forward stories in, and um, uh cases and people's uh, successes like George's to the world uh, that we are interacting with uh, as a contribution from direct shifts to the healthcare communities out there to show how much we care and especially how much we truly care about the importance of mental health um, for the country. So without much further ado, I want to present George Anderson to you. To begin with, George, I have not done justice to your profile at all to introducing you. I know that. Uh, so please forgive me for that. Please take two minutes to tell our viewers and our audience your entire journey, where you started, how you started, why you chose this field, and you know how you have evolved to be the person as great as you are today. I'd like to thank you and your organization for this opportunity. And the journey began many years ago when I uh, was a grade school student in Jackson, Mississippi. It was quite uh, unfortunate, but in the fifth grade, 
I was officially diagnosed by the school as being mentally retarded. And it was really um, a bad experience because I recall my mother saying to relatives, he is a slow learner, which used to be a nice way of saying he or she uh, is retarded. Well, as it turned out, after a year or two, they discovered that I was not actually retarded. And I actually was in college when I was 16 years old. But that uh, devastating blow never really went away. But in a way, it had a positive uh, impact because it put me in position of always um, over-preparing for most of the things that I did. So after graduating from college, I took a job as a probation officer in Los Angeles County. I worked on that job for 10 years. I specialized in working exclusively with teenagers. But I realized that I wasn't really doing as much as I wanted to do. I had very little impact on making changes in the lives of the people who I saw. So I went back to graduate school, first a year at UCLA School of Social Work, and I transferred to Smith College School of Social Work, which is in Massachusetts. And they uh, sent me on an internship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. And at the end of that internship, I actually accepted a job at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Denver. And before I could actually uh, take the position, I was invited to come to Harvard University to participate in training in child and adolescent psychotherapy. I completed that training uh, in 1973. And after that, Harvard kept me on for five years. And uh, I wanted to be back to uh, my family in Los Angeles. So uh, UCLA invited me to come to the Neuropsychiatric Institute as a lecturer in child psychiatry. And from UCLA uh, in that particular role, my wife, who also was on the faculty at UCLA, and I accidentally, quite honestly, developed the largest privately owned psychiatric clinic uh, in the US. And what made it different is that instead of us just having patient loads, we contracted with psychiatrists, psychologists, and clinical social workers in 12 states in the US. And we had corporate, corporate clients, United Airlines, British Airways, uh, Amtrak, Occidental Petroleum, and so on. And that lasted for 12 years. And then the worst thing that's ever happened in my life occurred. It's called managed healthcare. And managed healthcare means that there is an MBA at the end of the line who will tell you whether or not he's going to pay for your services or whether or not you can hospitalize a patient for how long and so on. And so that, that was the end of the clinic. Luckily, we had invested very well, so we didn't really have to work. But I didn't like being inactive. And so I asked myself, what can I do that no one really wants to do? And I had never met anyone who wanted to provide services for men who beat their wives or children, domestic violence. So I went and studied in Minnesota with Michael Paymar and Alan Pence, who were the top people at that time, uh, to be certified in providing uh, counseling for men who beat their wives. I was unimpressed with their training. I told them so. 
And they said, why not go back to UCLA, Los Angeles, and develop your own model? I did. I asked 10 students from the psychology department to do research with me for a year on everything that we could find on uh, batterers intervention. And it turns out that in my study group, I did not realize at the time, but at the end, when we were getting ready to finalize and publish the book, uh, we had eight languages represented. So my first book was Gaining Control of Ourselves, which is a curriculum for batterers intervention and is published in uh, eight languages. And so that the state of California adopted my model for use statewide. And in 1997, I received a conference call and it was from three judges. And they said, we're on a panel. We know who you are. We would like to ask if you would write a curriculum on anger management because we've enjoyed the uh, value of the program that we've been using from you. And so, again, I had no knowledge of anger management, no necessarily interest in anger management. But again, research first and then uh, publication. And the first publication was called Gaining Control of Ourselves followed by controlling ourselves. One was for um, uh, adults, which is gaining control of ourselves, controlling ourselves is for adolescents. And in 2008, I received a call from a hospital chain in Dallas, Texas. And the uh, medical director says that uh, they were aware also of the work that I had been doing in anger management and that the Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, which uh, essentially uh, accredits and uh, manages or controls what can and cannot be done uh, in hospitals and medical clinics throughout the country. And uh, he asked if I would write a curriculum that would not be based on mental health. And so that he wanted it to be exclusively a model using emotional intelligence, which is positive. It has no stigma that would be uh, in any way a career derailment for physicians. And so the title of that publication is um, The Practice uh, of Control. And uh, this put me in a position of working exclusively with physicians uh, and some uh, executives. But physicians are such excellent students that I have never experienced anything more gratifying. So personally, that's what I do, is that I do emotional intelligence assessments and coaching of physicians who've been defined as disruptive, disruptive of the anger part of it. And so that the official definition is behavior in the work site that risk patient safety. And uh, I just at 82, <laughs> Uh, got the largest contract that I have ever even dreamed of. And that contract is to provide emotional intelligence assessments for physicians at 10 hospitals in Saudi Arabia, plus one medical school, along with one hospital in Germany and one hospital in Egypt. Again, I'm 82, so everyone listening will know that this guy's not gonna be able to complete that project. But I do have a team, and so we're going to uh, dramatically expand our team. And I really appreciate uh, this opportunity and uh, can respond to any of the questions that you might ask regarding my story. 
George, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, frankly, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm so inspired by your story um, that I, I frankly have no words, um, um, but I have a lot of questions. So thanks for your time. Uh, I'll try to get all those questions within the time frame that I have. Uh, but first and foremost, I'm sure everybody listening to us would have failed if I had asked the question, guess George's age. Nobody would have been able to answer. The smile, the energy, um, the articulation, the, the, the motivation that you still have, uh, you know, it, it just do not do justice to your age. So let's put it that way. <laughs> so much. That's, that's awesome. I talk on words. We want you to complete all of those projects. Um, I want to start with, um, you said you went back to grad school because you wanted to help people. Now I want to underline that it's, you know, most of the times that's not, that's not the thinking behind a lot of people going back to grad school. So tell us back then when you were thinking about, you know, becoming a social worker, um, I, you know, the kind of mental health space or behavioral health space or even emotional intelligence space, how it has evolved over time from then that motivated you to enter that space and what you're actually seeing now, what, how has it evolved? Has it gotten better? Um, if it has gotten better in terms of being recognized as an area of study, as an area where people need care, uh, where else do you think it really needs to go? Well, first of all, it has not gotten better in my opinion. It has in fact gotten worse. And so that what happens now in correction is that it's warehousing and punishment rather than treatment and focusing on change. And so I'm very uh, disappointed. And so I give you an example. I'm involved in a small project, or I was since 2005, with the school district in Sacramento. It's Sacramento Unified School District. So what happens in this country is boys, for example, mostly boys, get in fights when they're in middle school or high school. And people of color are more likely to be suspended from school or expelled from school. When that occurs, it damages the career, the future of the person. And so it's like jail to prison. And uh, that's the opposite. It should be uh, recognition of a problem and the uh, connection with a useful resource that's counseling or psychotherapy. And so that they permitted me to do a project on, I believe it was 25 youngsters in which we did the uh, emotional intelligence assessment. And instead of uh, suspending the youngster for two weeks, we provided them emotional intelligence coaching our class really for all of those students for one semester. And then we gave the same assessment, post-assessment to see whether or not there was significant changes. And as you may expect, of course, for every single uh, student. And you would think that if we were able to demonstrate something that effective, because it saves money. When the school district uh, suspends a school a student, it loses the money for that particular student for that particular day. And it's quite substantial here uh, in California. And so that I still have that contract, but they've never expanded it. It's only one school, it's only one class. 
But one of the unique things about that program that I would really wish would be a model for other countries uh, like India uh, is that we provided anger management for the students, but we also provided anger management for those students' parents at a uh, adult high school in the evenings. And so that now you have the parents who are learning a lot about their child and ways that they can improve his or her functioning relative to self-awareness, self-control, social awareness, and relationship management. And it enhances the ability to concentrate and memory, and therefore the grades are gonna get better. Got it, got it. No, that's great. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important you, you, um, you mentioned it, uh, which is make sure, if I get it correctly, make sure you, you're using the right techniques uh, during early interventions. You know, especially with children and adolescents, you know, who could have long lasting impressions, make sure you're using the right techniques uh, that will help them change their behaviors using those techniques versus creating stigma in them. Not only do I agree with that, but we would save a lot of money and a lot of pain for society if we spent more time focusing on the youngsters, children and adolescents. As soon as we identify a problem that impacts cognition, we need to go all out to first determine why this is occurring and what can be done about it. Surprisingly, in this country, we did a better job doing the 40s and 50s than we're doing now at 2020. It's really, truly unfortunate in my opinion. Got it, got it. Um, again, very well said. Um, you did also say, you know, unfortunately it has not gotten much better. However, we are seeing a um, lot of newer techniques and newer companies, organizations coming to the picture where the claim is the access to mental health is improving. Access to behavioral techniques is improving. There are now more digital methods, quote unquote, you know, teletherapy, et cetera, that have come into the practice. CMS um, announcing that, you know, they're going to have more um, favorable policies with respect to mental health, et cetera. Are those really impacting the people? Are those really helping the people? When you say it has not improved, Please tell us and you know our audience what areas you know do you think there has to be more work done? Let me first say that I meant over time and there has not been improvement in certain yeah. areas. But yes, our knowledge and our ability have has improved. For example, the emotional intelligence was only introduced to us in 1995. So we didn't have that body of knowledge to use at all. And so that interestingly enough, while it's not based on psychopathology or mental health or mental illness, emotional intelligence can be uh, instrumental in positive change as it relates to understanding ourselves and the ability to understand our feelings as well as the feelings of others and to use that information in a way that leads to a positive outcome for us as well as the uh, other party. 
So on recently, and uh, it's maybe not a nice way of looking at it, but the pandemic that we're in right now is going to produce far more changes than any other period in my lifetime. And so that, yes, organizations, companies now are advocating for their client population, their employees, access the employee assistance program, uh, take advantage of your uh, insurance policies and uh, don't be ashamed of having um, suffering from anxiety, depression or so on. Instead, they're encouraging uh, the employees to take advantage of it so that right now we're being flooded all over the country with requests for services and keep in mind telepsychiatry was never available to me i've never experienced it at all and so that but now anyone can do it or even now in terms of anger management uh beginning with the uh, pandemic no one is seeing anyone face to face everything like this is virtual that's a good thing and so i did not mean to minimize what's happening in the last eight months because i don't think that we're going to be able to see that much results from that for years to come but am i encouraged am i optimistic absolutely perfect that's great to hear from you uh george somebody like you that you're, you're optimistic so thank you for that um thanks for clarifying um what would be your biggest recommendation to therapists out there that are now using more virtual techniques in order to help patients. Yes, one can argue it may have improved the access, but what would be your recommendations to them? We have in our network, so many therapists, uh, just taking a step back, Direct Shifts is um, a healthcare recruitment and staffing platform, which connects clinicians directly to employers. We also have a lot of therapists on our platform who we actually find staffing and jobs for, we match them uh, to the right job. So we have a lot of them in our network and most of them have chosen teletherapy as one of their big preferences. As we analyze, you know, what are the clinicians preferences as the economy is changing, telemedicine has become one of the biggest preferences even for therapists. So for all of those, what would be your biggest recommendation? So that while access is improving using virtual methods, the outcomes should not be impacted. So what would be your recommendations to them so that they can continue to achieve the same patient outcomes while using virtual digital mechanisms? I am absolutely convinced that we, everyone in mental health should add emotional intelligence to their competencies. And so that in the future, we're going to get far more mileage from clinicians who in addition to understanding psychopathology, uh, mental and nervous disorders and psychotherapy, but those same clinicians will be able to be far more effective with their clients if they're able to also incorporate emotional intelligence. I am at the moment working with the University of North Carolina School of Social Work, Dr. Karen Bullock, and so one, they're doing research on work that I've done with physicians. And two, we are advocating for the introduction of emotional intelligence courses for all social work practitioners. And I'm asking that psychology and psychiatry does the same thing 
people are far more willing to go for counseling classes or coaching and emotional intelligence than they are psychotherapy for mental or nervous disorders. Got it. Got it. That's that's such a great point. Uh, George, thank you so much again for mentioning that. For our audience, uh, George, will you please um, define emotional intelligence, emotional quotients, and how uh, one should um, uh, become more aware of emotional intelligence and probably how one should train themselves on emotional intelligence and incorporate that into their practices? The answer is yes. Uh, a simple definition of emotional intelligence would be the ability to understand your own emotions and those of others and use that information in a way that is useful for you in relating to the other person. In contrast, we have what's called IQ. IQ is what you and your colleagues Raj have in um, incredible degree. And that's uh, the intellect, the ability to manipulate symbols and objects. And so to master precision learning in college, chemistry, science, physics, and so on. And uh, if you in incorporate emotional intelligence, it's going to have the other uh, part of it, which is relating to other human beings. That's what you really, really want to uh, maximize. And so that uh, I believe, and it's happening already, Yale University began a program some years ago. It was started actually by James Comer. And it's social emotional learning for children. And so there's a book that we just passed, that one, written by my son, Grab the Wheel Kids. That's my son, Brian Anderson. And so what he's done is that he's um, converted or uh, changed one particular instrument that I use called the Contrasting Wheels of Behavior uh, to be used with young children with explosive anger who also happen to be autistic. And so that one of the things that he's done in terms of using emotional intelligence is on this particular book, he explains or he, he wrote the book for use by parents, uh, family members, as well as teachers and psychologists. And so example that I can give you that I really like, and I know we're short of time, but uh, in my practice, I saw a physician, a woman, surgeon, and in the process of our first meeting, she says, I have a son who's five years old and he's suffering from autism. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, well, look, uh, I have a gift for you. So I gave her a copy of the book, Grab the Wheel Kids by Brian. And uh, I said, this will be very helpful because what it does is that uh, it gives you a way to um, um, develop exercises to decrease behaviors that are inappropriate and increase behaviors that are positive. And so that what she did, and when she came back, she said, I'd like three more copies. And she said, I don't care how much it costs, I will buy them. And what she wanted is that her psychologist were not, was not aware of this particular model. Uh, and she got copy for her mom and for his teacher. And so that right away, now we have a school, a private school, that is using social emotional intelligence, which is what it is, as well as grandma now knows what mom and dad are trying to do in relation to Johnny. 
and it's broken down in simple steps and it's really just incredible. I hope I answered the question. Sometimes I get a little bit overly excited. No, 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 you did, you did. Uh, uh, can you please uh, name that book uh, again, George? Grab the Will Kids by Brian Anderson. Okay. And all of these publications are available on our website at andersonservices.com. Perfect, perfect. Oh, great. No, that, that definitely uh, helps um, uh, and it definitely answers the question. Um, the reason why I asked is, again, most of the times we are stuck with IQ. We think IQ is what is needed, like you said, to do our jobs on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think you very well um, clarified that you know emotional quotient is sometimes even more important. Um, um, so um, you 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 mentioned you do a lot of work with physicians in in corp in helping physicians incorporate emotional intelligence, emotional quotient into their work. Um, and you know you've also given a lot of lectures and um, talks about what the pandemic is doing, um, you know, to the entire country, but especially our healthcare workers. Um, and I think one of the one of the themes that we saw was uh, why is COVID-19 making you angry? Um, so I'll, I'll come directly into healthcare workers. We'll talk about you know, general people like me a little bit later, but it's very much possible that healthcare workers could be more burnt out, quote unquote, more frustrated to the point that they could be getting angry more than the rest of us because of the pandemic. Um, given the load that it has put uh, on them. Um, so what have you observed and um, how did this theme of why is COVID-19 making you angry come up? What have you observed that you thought it is important to speak about COVID-19 making people, especially healthcare workers, angry? It's because uh, the demands that are made on our healthcare workers now, we've never had anything quite like this. And each day I uh, am working with physicians who are holding the hands of people who are dying, who don't have a chance to see or relate to uh, family members. Plus, these physicians are risking their health and the health of their families by doing this. And finally, we do not have enough resources, at least in our country, to, make, uh, to meet the needs. I'm in California. And so that right now in California, we have not enough beds to accommodate the people who already have been admitted to college, I mean, to hospitals. That has never existed in this country at all. And uh, none of us have anything to go on. There's nobody who you can talk to who can share any similar experience in the past and how they may have resolved it. And so that the saddest thing that may not uh, be... Uh, um, public knowledge yet, but it will be in a very short time, is that many physicians are trying to figure out ways of leaving medicine in terms of clinical practice. They don't want to be doctors anymore. And when you think about the amount of investment that the community makes in uh, training a physician, this is going to be devastating to the whole country and probably the world. So what makes the person angry is the inability to respond to the demands that are being made on them at any particular time. That's what it is. And the particular time is right now, 
I'm treating a patient and the patient is in the hallway. I met with a senior physician who had been with the same hospital for 35 years. And he says that his wife had to be admitted to the hospital and they had her in the hallway. And it was like, can we can we put my wife in a room? And the answer was no, we don't have any rooms. It doesn't matter who you are. We don't have any rooms. That's what is happening. And I don't know what it is that we can do, except I am recommending to healthcare organizations that began now to invest in what's going to happen next. And so that we should never allow ourselves to be unprepared for a pandemic because everyone knows it's going to happen again. I'm sorry, I'm a bit emotional on that one. No, no, uh, rightly so. Um, and thank you for saying that, um, especially because we see the same thing all the time. You know, physician burnouts, in general, healthcare workers burnout has always been um, an important concern uh, for most people in the healthcare industry. Um, and it has been exposed much more, like you said, now because of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the, the techniques for the general population to deal with uh, behavioral issues and mental health issues caused by various things, especially now because of pandemic uh, slash, you know, not being able to do things like you used to do. Um, the techniques for them or the access to care for them may have improved, um, but has that improved for healthcare workers as well is the big question that we need to ask. So thank you for highlighting that, um, that healthcare workers need the same access to uh, emotional intelligence techniques like others as well. So if healthcare workers, clinicians, nurses, physicians, um, you know, anybody as respiratory therapists, CRNAs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, you name it, there are multitudes of healthcare workers that are helping us through the pandemic today. If they want to reach out for help because they see themselves getting frustrated or, or getting burnt out, what should they do? Most hospitals in this country have what's called employee assistance programs. And so that they should contact the employee assistance program. If the hospital or the medical system does not have it, then whoever you report to, let him or her know that I need help. And so that I am convinced that they're going to go all out right now because it, they recognize the value and the difficulty of replacing one physician. And so that we've been recruiting nurses, for example, from the Philippines uh, in the United States for many, many years. Now there's simply not enough. Uh, Philippine uh, nurses are available. So we're in a crisis and that's the easiest thing and the best thing to do. But I would like to make one point. Burnout is not a mental or a nervous disorder. And so that counseling or psychotherapy is not what you need for that. That's exclusively one that you want to deal with differently. One is emotional intelligence. But the second part of it is that the organizations itself need to make changes it's like uh, the uh, requirement, for example, that residents uh, in uh, training uh, are permitted to work, uh, you know, hours and hours and hours without a break or anything like that is not realistic at all. And that's not new. Residents have complained about the workload uh, for them for years and years. 
And so it's changed recently just a little bit, but not enough. And so what's happening now is uh, right now I have the same senior physician who I had mentioned before. He worked 12 days straight without an off time at all. And we think he sh should not be burned out. Why, why not? He's just another human. And so the organization has to change. We cannot put all of this on the individual. Got it. Got it. No, that, that, that's well said. Uh, uh, sorry, Raj. Raj, if you're speaking, you're on mute. Yeah. By the Thank way, you. you are on mute. You're on mute yeah. is, is the most important code of 2020. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, I mean, for past 12 minutes, I'm in the burnout. Uh, probably I'm testing my own anger. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is awesome. This going. So right now we have a surprise guest. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the nurse coach dot uh, CEO, CEO uh, Holly Kalu. Um, she joined us. In fact, uh, it's an exciting um, moment for us uh, because she uh, she's also a uh, healthcare revenue cycle uh, consultant, speaker, and podcaster at convertyourworkplaceculture.com. And uh, uh, Wamshi, over to you. I'll bring her in. Uh, George, um, you can also chat with Holly. Uh, and Holly can take it over from here. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Welcome here. And Thank you for inviting me, Raj. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting for 12 minutes to introduce you or put you in this powerful group of uh, individuals with EQ, IQ, but thank you so much for your patience. Thank you for having me. And what a privilege to meet you, George. Um, I, I love the anger management movie. And I don't know what that says about me if, if I loved it or not, but <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I would say I'm, I'm many of your target market. I've been a nurse for 35 years. Um, I'm a mother of an 11 year old. Uh, it dealt with the shelter in place while trying to uh, work from home and school my daughter from home. I live in California, so we're short on uh, ICU beds right now. Um, and and so thank you so much for your your work. Um, how do you encourage staff to to tap into the EAP? So what I found is um, as a leader of staff, they they don't understand the the culture of safety. It really is okay to use EAP. They get worried that somehow um, the, the insurance will find out and maybe it's going to cost them more or maybe their boss will find out and, and they'll lose um, credibility. Um, but it's so important for people to tap into EAP when you might need help um, not when you definitely need help when you're past that uh, that point. I previously had a contract with an employee with a major studio in California. I don't know what's happening, but we're getting an echo. I'm hearing an echo. I'll, but, I'll mute and see if that helps. Okay. I had a uh, contract with uh, a motion picture company and it was big. And so that one of the things that we did is that every month, someone from my office would go and they would have like a lunch, uh, bag lunch, whatever they call it. And sometimes we'll be um, outside or where it is that they wanted to have it. And they would have selected a topic that they would want me to speak on. It didn't have to be mental health. I mean, exactly. Example, 
uh, one was stress. And so that uh, I uh, would talk for 35 minutes or whatever, and then they would ask whatever uh, they wanted regarding stress. And I would give tips to the extent that, that I could. And that way they would have seen me and they would, or somebody from my office, they would have seen what the person that you may see is kind of like. And we give them information regarding what they can anticipate when they have a meeting with an employee assistance person. And we would focus to the extent possible on the positive. For example, we know that grieving is a natural process, but we also know that grieving can become pragmatic, I mean, uh, problematic if it lasts too long or if it impacts the ability to perform certain tasks uh, and so on. And so that we try to make what we present practical, but most of the time we followed up on topics that were interested to them. And then we would give uh, sometimes a positive presentation of a client that may have been referred to us uh, for um, through the EAP. And what happened is this whole thing came about because the same organization referred me the vice president of a major part of the company. It was his idea to bring me in. And so that he permitted me to use his own example of how he was referred or basically mandated to see me. And the process was very, very positive. And he wishes that he had not approached it in a negative light. And so that they don't know enough about the EAP and how to maximize its value. For example, if you have an elderly parent and you're stressed because the resources are not there and you don't know what to do, you uncomfortable with placing him or her or whatever, the EAP has knowledge of resources in your community. And so they're not treating you for a psychiatric disorder. They're useful in helping you find a resource for grandma. So I'm sorry, that's a thought that I had. No, I love that. Um, it is It is so much more than what people feel that it's, okay, it's a psych issue, I've got to do that. Um, and there is so much, to, there's a benefit to just being able to get something off your chest yes. and that, and, and and that's why I try and, you know, and would encourage the staff. You have somebody <laughs> who's paid to listen to you. So, you, you know, if your husband doesn't want to listen to you and your kids, I said, there's somebody who will sit there and just listen to you for an hour and, um, and then, you know, certainly give you advice. And so I was able to get um, more people through when they felt like, oh, there's somebody that can't walk away who doesn't want to hear what I have to say. And then they would discover, oh, I actually have some anxiety. I actually have some depression um, that I was able to, to learn and, and, and move forward with new steps. And uh, so I, I appreciate that is a great way to, to change the, the perception of what the EAP support is. And, um, and as far as the, the work with the burnout, in my most uh, recent organization, we started a burnout committee and we we're so excited. We we're going to start. Um, how can we support practitioners and and really create that culture of safety? Um, because it's so sad to see the suicides that have happened because of the the pandemic and have pushed people. Um, really want to encourage people to 
to share and and get that help. Um, but I, I think as as nurses and physicians, we're we're taught to just kind of park our own emotions. We leave one room where a code was not successful, and then we go and serve juice in the next room. And hi, I'm your nurse today. So we're, it, we get used to burying so much and, and putting ourselves in the back. Um, thank you, George, for you know reminding us um, how important that is to you know, identify our authentic feelings. So. I'd just like to add one thing, not nurses, because I don't have as much experience with nurses, but with doctors. Mm -hmm. Whenever I see a new doctor, one of the things that I ask early on is, oh, by the way, when's the last time you have a physical? And you cannot imagine the response. They have to laugh. The answer is they can hardly remember. So the first thing that I say is, doctor, before I next appointment, I'd like for you to make an appointment with uh, a physician. You need to have an exam. <laughs> and they are the worst patients that exist, in, I think. And that's truly unfortunate. That's not really the way it should be. We should model for the rest of the world. They should model. Yeah, that's an that's an excellent excellent point. Um, I I wanted to ask you about on the parenting side. Um, the, the parents are trying to do their best, but we're really seeing a shift in how children are feeling. Um, you know, pushed as as no longer priority because the parents are are overwhelmed. It's like here, eat whatever, do your homework. I've got it, and and so there's. Um, it's altering the relationships of the parents with their children. And in March, when uh, when COVID hit, and I all of a sudden, you know, I'm trying to work full time and have a full time schedule with my daughter. It's like, how do I fit 14 hours in simultaneously? And so I called my sister, who did uh, homeschooling. And then I found I'm not the only person going through this. So I, I launched a quick podcast. I had never done a podcast before, and went. You know, if I can't sew masks, maybe I can do a podcast. So I brought on parents and teachers, you know, can you give us tips? And it was interesting. Different parents were running at like a military camp at nine o'clock. You will be at your desk and you're going to. And and then other ones are like, you know, it's about making sure we still feel good about each other at the end of the day. So what is your suggestion on, on uh, how to keep going? Because this. I thought was just going to be a few months. I did a few months of podcasts, but it's still going. I wish I could be more helpful, but remember, I'm an advocate for emotional intelligence. And so that I think a combination of the two, depending on the age of the child, share as much as you can about the reality of the situation right now. And because of that, we're doing lots of things that are uncomfortable for me, for you, for everyone. And this is how we can make it better. You, you do your part, I will do my part. And you can say to mommy, mommy, you seem to be stressed out today. And then I will immediately begin thinking about, oh my goodness, what can I do differently? That's emotional intelligence. You're teaching the child not only to recognize his or her feelings, but how to sense the moves that you have, right? And so you want to list everyone as a part of the solution, not just the uh, problem. I wish I could be better, but that's no, that's that's perfect because that's a great life skill that we probably wouldn't have given our children except for this opportunity. Teaching them how to identify their feelings, how to share it. I love it because 
um, I, I have definitely in, um, involved my daughter in conversations that I probably would have said, oh, that's business or that's, um, and then how about spouses? Uh, is there a tip on checking in with each other um, in case something's kind of brewing and get to the pre-brew state um, during this COVID? you have any suggestions on communicating that? I do. One is that we need to be recognized always our own feelings. And so that the best time to communicate with someone close is not when you're angry, not when you're exhausted, not when you're hungry. <laughs> and so pick the best time for you and the other party. So it may be midday on Saturday or something like that. And so, oh, by the way, there's some things that I'd like to discuss with you that occurred earlier in the week. When's a good time for you? And so that try and be as objective as you can. And it may be easier to start with X, Y, and Z occurred, and this is the way it made me feel. And I'm sure that isn't what you had in mind. By the ways that we can uh, do this differently. And so that, again, uh, we have an obligation, in my opinion, to be in control of our actions. We cannot control how we feel. If you're angry, anger is a normal human emotion. And there's no problem with feeling angry but there is a problem in behaving angrily. And that's what we want to do is be aware, share with others, and ask, seek assistance in modulating the behavior that may result. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned about anger. Do you, do you feel that, uh, that the amount of anger that people are experiencing is... Um, uh, connected to the amount of uh, variables that are out of control in their life? Absolutely. We've never experienced anything like this. So, of course. And so that, yes, this is really just totally um, off the chart. And our ability to manage any of these stressors is not available. It doesn't exist. So it makes us feel very helpless. And so that then triggers an uncomfortable feeling, which may result uh, in anger. The American Psychiatric Association says that anger is a normal human emotion. It is a problem when it is too intense, occurs too frequently, lasts too long, has health risks, destroys school, or work relationships or impacts relationships with significant others. And so that we don't want to make it something that it isn't. And so let's deal with it as something that's normal and uh, is only a problem when it becomes one of those things. And so that if you see any of those things occurring, say, I think this is something that we need to try and do something about. And yes, the EAP, again, would be great in the workplace. I didn't say because it will take the balance of the day. But I remember, I'm sure all of you remember something called, um, uh, what is it called? Going postal? Going postal. Have you, have you heard that in a long time? The answer, of course, is no. The reason is that for years, the post office would call me when someone in California or in the United States, well, pretty much any place, uh, would go postal and uh, it's called critical incident debriefing. So 
The last one, I believe, was in Santa Barbara, California. A woman killed, uh, I don't know, six or eight people or something like that. Anyway, they called me and I said, hey, look, I appreciate the work that you give me, but is it possible for me to talk to someone on a higher level? And it turns out it was assistant, uh, whatever you call it, the postmaster general. And I said, uh, could we bring in some researchers to determine why this occurs in the post office? And all of you probably uh, would have figured this out, but me and the post office didn't. The post office has been since World War II, the last employer of uh, veterans. So everybody knows how to use a military, a gun, pretty much in the post office because they're people who were in the army, right? And postmaster general, why such a title? Don't know. But in any case, uh, in a nutshell, what we did is we, Holly, we did the research and we determined what the problem was. And then we began training the employee assistance program providers in the post office and how to recognize stress, evidence of substance abuse, a whole range of common problems that uh, existed in the workplace and could not believe it in one year because we're doing research. We saved the post office just shot for 11,000 employees, 1.7 million. That's funny. <laughs> but in any case, so I went, it went global. They did, we did it post office wise. Wow, thank we you. A lot. We know a lot, but we don't use that information that we already know. So I don't know what to say. Thank you. Bamshi, I should uh, <laughs> hand the mic back to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh sure, uh, Holly. Thank you so much. First of all, for making it, and you know all the all the right questions and sharing your views and thoughts as well. Thank you so much, um, George. I probably you know last question from my side. Um, in fact, somebody special told me today it's going to be a new day. It's going to be a great day. I can already see that. You know, interacting with both of you um, and learning so much and just being the medium of sharing this knowledge with a lot of other people out there. It's definitely a great day and a new day. Um, I just got a question on text, um, George. I think, first of all, you know, thank you for your work. You're doing great work uh, by helping physicians you know, manage their emotions. Can you share your top three techniques you share with physicians on how to manage their anger in the work workspace? Um, you know, you can share as many details as possible, George, but the question is about what should physicians use as top three techniques to manage their anger in the workspace, especially in an era like today? I make it really simple as best I can. Self-awareness, periodically during the day, close your eyes and ask yourself the question, how am I feeling? And let the answer to that question guide your behavior. And so that's number one, self-awareness. And again, self-control. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like cursing out my supervisor or something like that. That then becomes the behavior. So you're gonna control that. Social awareness. What are those people who are closest to me feeling right now? How are my children feeling that um, I'm no longer uh, commuting or that I'm having to do homeschooling and so on? And then relationship management. And so that I, I think that each one of us can break those four down into uh, statements that uh, would be practical. I can't answer that. And then 
looking for exercises uh, for yourself. So self-care is, is one. It's like there's certain things that really we should be very cautious about. It's, it's uh, sleep deprivation. And so that if you're working all the time, it's like I said to Raj, when do you sleep? <laughs> because he was contacting me a lot and I liked it. But I said, this guy's up all the time. But in any case, that's what I would suggest. And Holly, please don't let me forget. I got to have some contact with you. So make sure I can reach you. I would love that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Uh, thanks, George. Um, self-awareness, self-control, social awareness, you know, simple techniques, um, you know, out for the audience out there, please take a note. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I did make a, make a lot of notes, but I'm going to highlight gaining control of ourselves. You know, that's a great book. I would suggest um, people to go to Anderson and Anderson website and see, you know, if they can uh, download material from there, get a copy of these books, practice of control. And definitely, you know, grab the be grab the wheel for kids. Uh, these three, for sure, I'm going to get a copy of these and start reading. And I would encourage, you know, everybody listening to us also do the same thing. And uh, George, again, thank you for summarizing uh, the need for emotional intelligence, emotional quotient. Um, you know, again, the need for growth in mental health and behavioral health space in the country. Thank you for summarizing it and reinforcing it so well. Um, Holly, thank you for joining us. Uh, again, this would not have been as great as it has become uh, without your presence and, and uh, participation as well. So thank you for joining us. Both of you, thank you so much for what you do. Um, seriously, I think both of you are coaches and you know absolute angels to the healthcare workers today, which we all need uh, because like you both said, who is helping the healthcare workers who are helping millions of people out there. So thank you for what you do. Um, you know, before we conclude um, any final comments, please. And then, you know, uh, you know, we'll, we'll conclude the session, but I have a lot of other things to chat with you. Any final comments, George? I just like to tell mostly Holly, a funny story regarding the movie anger management. I had never done a movie before. So I got a call one day and the caller said, uh, you're a psychotherapist, right? I said, yes. He says, if you refer to a patient who is depressed, what would you do? And I said, I started an assessment and determine whether or not that is the case and what kind of depression. And I would determine whether medication is necessary. Then I'd have to see a psychiatrist, inpatient treatment, and so on. And he said, what if the person was suffering from anxiety? I said, the same thing. Anxiety can be a symptom of a wide range of disorders, or it could be a problem in its own right. Assessment at first and then determine what to do. And he says, what if a person will refer to you for anger management? I said, ah, a different story. Anger <laughs> is not an illness. And I says, I still would do an assessment, but it's an emotional intelligence assessment. And what I would do basically would focus on the areas in which he or she scores low. And he said, how would you like to be a consultant on a movie? And I said, I don't know. I said, I get back to you. So that I live in an area, I live in Brentwood, and lots of uh, film people live here. So I called a producer friend of mine, and I told him, and he says, they want you to do this movie. And he says, take it. And he says, I have my attorney write your contract. And he did. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it's really funny. I had no idea what was going on. They said, Jack Nicholson is going to call and say, we're inviting you to a party at my house. And if you go 
without having a top, a top, a really good contract, they're going to get all the information that they want from you for free. <laughs> and so what happened is, this is just amazing. They paid me $5,000 a day. If they asked one question, it was $5,000. If they asked 10 questions, $5,000, but that's the way it went. And so that they say, well, would you want to come to the party? Then my question has to be, would you like for me to come? If the answer is yes, I get paid. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> but that's the way it works. Raj, you're on mute. You're on mute. Okay. Now I should say on LinkedIn, if you have a question for George Anderson, it's $5,000. <laughs> Hollywood be like, Raj, take my credit card. But still, <laughs> thank you so much. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks Very to all good. of you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Any way that can be useful in the future, I would really like to. And if I could ever do this again, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. All right. No, absolutely. Um, again, great experience. Um, we, we, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, um, could not do a lot of traveling, but we always go. Uh, in fact, this is the longest I have not set foot in a hospital. I've always, every week, I'm in one of the other hospitals. Um, you know, doing work for them, with them. Uh, but uh, we do a lot of work in California as well. Um, uh, and you know, both of you being in California, the next time I travel, of course, after taking all the necessary precautions, I would love to have an opportunity to meet with you both. I would like that. I'd like that too. Sounds great. Thank you. Awesome. Raj? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, now Are I'm we- not... I'm just trying to make sure. But thank you so much for all the viewers who have tuned in for live. If you're hitting the replay of this particular episode with uh, George Anderson, the godfather of anger management or burnout, and why is COVID making me so angry? Come on. Uh, How should I overcome uh, the post-pandemic anxiety? Uh, So if you're watching this or if you'd like to know more, hit replay and make sure you subscribe, like, comment, and share. And we'll also... Uh, share the biteable uh, content of this entire series uh, through our Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts uh, through directions.com. Thank you so much for all the viewers for tuning in. Uh, and we will see you with another interesting um, guest uh, very soon. And we wish you a very happy new year and uh, happy holidays. Again, Wamsi, over to you if you'd like to share anything about uh, the holiday season, any message from Directships and for all the future guests. Now, I couldn't have asked for a better end to my 2020 than this session. In fact, I want to close my laptop, not do any more work. This is my last session. This is the best way, uh, I think, to, to end 2020, which in it's just been challenging in its own way, but also has been revealing and enriching in its own way. Um, and this, again, I say is the best way to have interviewed George, and be the medium for the rest of the world to share George's knowledge with others and to have Holly participate in this as well. Uh, the best way to end my year. Um, and Happy New Year to both of you, to Raj and everybody um, you know that's watching us and everybody that we work with. Happy New Year. Um, I, I, feel, I feel blessed. I mean, I, I don't know what I have done to uh, make sure that I'm ending my year like this in such a great mood. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I definitely um, have... Um, Great faith in God and the fact that I've done some things right, that he has given me good mood at the end of the year. Thanks awesome. for everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh-
Thank you, Vomchi. Uh, I, George, uh, probably you should get on a call with the anger management team and tell them to do a part two series because that'll be a huge hit. Post-pandemic for the last one year, entire world is uh, under burnout, under too much of anger because of the spouse control at home. That's again me. <laughs> but you should definitely tell them. Uh, I, I'm glad that we could reverse our age and probably go back to Harvard Medical School. I don't know why we are not uh, classmates in Harvard Medical School. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Wamshi. Thank you, George. Uh, uh, see you guys next time. And take care. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you all. <laughs>